With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, this is Mary. We're back with a new kind of episode today. We teased in the mailbag episode that we wanted to do some care and keeping of you shows based on topics of interest to our listeners. We've heard from many of you about the ways the Josefina books made you think about grief, both how it's depicted in the books and how it made you reflect on moments of grief in your own lives. We heard from a listener who is interested in sharing her knowledge on this, and she graciously made time to talk to us about how grief plays out in these books and how we might be kind to ourselves and our friends who are grieving. Our guest is Allison Merrick, a psychotherapist in private practice specializing in shame, trauma, and eating disorders. She is also clinical director of an eating disorder treatment center in Houston, Texas. Let's go now to our conversation with Allison Merrick. Hey, Allison. This is Mary. Hi. Oh my God. I'm like fangirling right now. (laughs) I'm here with other, other equally prestigious Allison. Hi, Allison. Hi. This is a real meeting of the minds. Like I can't believe I have these two Allison's together with me now and you both spell it the same way, which is wonderful. The correct way. Yes. And we, I recently chopped all my hair off in January. And so I relate to your hair, like, I don't want to name it a struggle for you, but like your attachment <laughs> to your hair and your like creativity. And yes, like, yes. okay. So let me just first say we're so um, grateful to have you on our show that you reached out to us um, on our social media and we were able to connect with you. Thank you so much for being here today. Of course, thank you for having me. I am I am so excited to talk like all the things I love. I feel like um, nine year old Allison would be very proud. So I'm excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, we're we're happy to meet nine year old Allison and adult Allison <laughs> and talk about all the things that you love. So, um, just to kind of get started, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about yourself and most importantly. And this is a loaded question, so feel free to take some time with this. Which character do you feel the strongest affinity for? And has this changed or evolved at all since you were nine-year-old Allison? Yes. So I, um, I'm a therapist. I'm trained as a licensed clinical social worker. Um, and I work as clinical director at an eating disorder treatment center. And then I also have a private practice where I specialize in eating disorders and, um, shame and in trauma. Um, and so though, as a child, I Molly through and through, through and through Molly, I was like, I identified in so many ways with Molly and even looking back on my childhood, I mean, I, I'm definitely a Molly, um, but I've got to tell you in reading Josefina now, Josefina came out like a couple years, like past my American girl prime. 
Um, but reading about her now, I'm kind of having an identity crisis because I feel like I was in some ways like a Josefina on the inside with like a Molly on the outside, which seems very um, like quite a paradox, but that's kind of where I lived. Um, wow. Can can you maybe yeah. say more about that? What does that mean to be a Josefina on the inside and a Molly on the outside? <laughs> so I think that I really spent a lot of time I think absorbing a lot of people's emotions, really people watching a whole lot. And I think that's typically associated with people who are more introverted. Um, But I think what I did with a lot of those feelings that I experienced and that I picked up on and that I was kind of a sponge for in a way that Josefina was, instead of going inward with that, I think I had a lot more um, kind of outward expressions of that. And I think my people pleasing came out in a very Molly-esque way where there was a lot of performing and a lot of achieving. And so I think it manifested itself differently. But I think like I think like in Molly, you know, in Molly's birthday book, which oh my gosh, yes, but you know what I'm saying, the birthday book, um, when she like gives her she shares her birthday party with Emily And then she's, you know, really into it and really connecting and really feeling like, um, like, I think there's just part of her that really feels like she's helping this person and is really taking a lot of pride in that. And then she's reaches this point where she's like, I'm done here. I feel like I've given you my birthday party and I'm over it. (laughs) I can can really like kind of, yeah, I I can, um, I can kind of see that in that example. That's entirely fair. I respect that. Thank you. Do y'all have an identity crisis? Like with any, because I know y'all are both Molly's, but I'm wondering if there's another one that's like your number two. Hmm. Allison, any thoughts on that? I think from starting the podcast to now, we've reeled back a lot of our other, I will say, conceptions or misconceptions about the dolls because we get flooded with messages almost daily with people bringing up things that we don't Mm -hmm. remember. And we've said before that with Kirsten, one of the first things that happened was you know, people to us, friends, kind of half-jokingly called us monsters because we had forgotten about all the death and trauma that she experiences. Mm. And we both just only remembered the St. Lucia Right. We blocked it all out. So I'm I'm most excited, I have to say, for Kit because the passion that people bring when talking about Kit is Molly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was after my time. So it's kind of like I've never read Josefina before this and it will be my first time reading the Kit books when we get there. So I'm I'm excited to kind of go on that journey. Who knows? I mean, I'm having an identity crisis, just generally speaking, probably every day. So in terms of AG associations, it's like I can't even begin. So this is what has gotten me started um, on this, like trying to identify each American girl's Enneagram type Um, because so the Enneagram, it's this personality um, kind of, it's not really a test because it really does have to do with more like reading and self-identification. The tests are just a tool, but it's a model for personality types. Um, And it started off in a very, it has very spiritual and Christian origins actually, but it's become much more secular um, through the years and is used a lot in like um, leadership coaching and things like that. And there's nine personality types and there can be some overlap. So if you're a two personality type, you might have aspects of like a one or a three 
And um, like each number has a type that they go to in growth and then a type that they go to in stress. And so I was thinking about this whole like Josefina Molly thing and kind of the like how um, each American girl has things in common despite being so different. And so that's why I like got into this whole like, oh my gosh, I wonder what the Enneagram types are. So if anybody's like an Enneagram expert, like I would love to, I would love to know. I think you could like, definitely deepen um, the understanding of all the American girls. So since we reposted your post about that, we've gotten a lot of really? hot takes. And what's been kind of interesting is, well, people have pretty much all picked different numbers for each mm-hmm. AG. So there hasn't been consistency, um, but Josefina has been pegged by a, a, a few yeah, people as a two. that's the most obvious. So I don't know that's if that the means most anything. Obvious. Um, okay. And the two is – is the helper. The two is the the personality type. I, I'm a two wing three and I think Josefina's a two and Molly's a three, which it it makes sense when I think of it in that way. But a two is the the personality type that um that like I said they're referred to as the helper. Um and they really get a lot of their identity and their self-worth from helping. And it kind of left to their own devices or um, when when we twos aren't being very mindful, um, we can often give and give and give at the expense of ourselves or it can become a way to distract from what's really going on with us. Um, and I think we see, we can see that play out in Josefina, that her way of, of coping with this grief um, is through helping and there can be wonderful, healthy things about that. But I think we see, I mean, it, it's become Josefina's sort of default and we're all sort of like Josefina's the child here, like who's, who's there for her. And so, I don't know, I, I fear for grown up Josefina and like, how is she going to learn to really ask for what she needs? And wow. Not? So you're bringing up a lot of issues that we've been thinking a lot about and we really want to get into with you. So I'm not even sure how to get into this because there's so much to cover, but you've kind of told us a bit about um, what you do professionally, but I'm wondering if you could get into maybe before we get into the books, what kind of inspired your work? Because we're hoping to kind of talk with you about how our readers might process grief and shame and all these things that show up in the book in healthy ways, and then kind of have you sort of interpret what's happening in the books that you see as a professional. So I actually started off, I was very, very into theater growing up. I went to the high school for the performing and visual arts here in Houston. Um, I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music for my first year of college, which is now part of Berkeley College of Music. Um, and I, I loved it. And, um, then I went to kind of my junior year of high school. Actually, I had this experience where I was volunteering at Texas Children's Hospital here in the medical center. And I was working, I think I was just in like the playroom on like the cancer floor, which is where I was, you know, doing my volunteering. And I had this moment where I was like, oh no. I like this more than I like theater. What am I going to do? Because it was my life. It was my identity. Um, And I didn't want to disappoint people. And, um, and I was just terrified at the thought that like, I liked something else more than that. So I did what I was supposed to do. I went on, I graduated. um, 
went to Boston. And then after like a year and a half, I was just really miserable. And it actually manifested itself in an eating disorder at that point. Um, and so I came home and at first I, I majored in education. Um, and then I, when I was interning, I did an internship with Teach for America. And for me, I realized like, okay, well, I think if I were a teacher, we would be talking about feelings all day long and no one would like pass their exam. So <laughs> that's probably not going to work. But, but in all seriousness, I just think that I was really interested in helping children address like the really hard barriers um, like that they were having in their life related to um, to trauma and anxiety and depression and um, and their home environments. And so I switched to psychology um, and then I um, found my way into social work through Brene Brown. I don't know if y'all are familiar with her, um, but I highly recommend that everyone kind of look her up, watch her TED Talk, read her books. Um, she at the time, well, she still is a professor at the University of Houston, but she wasn't like a New York Times bestseller at the time. And I went to one of her talks here in Houston and I was like, oh my gosh, what do you do for a living? And she is a social worker. And so um, we, you know, we kind of kept in touch and I um, studied abroad in South Africa and I was really, really just inspired by her work on shame and vulnerability and connection. Um, and so I got my master's in social work and um, then I really wanted to work in um, kind of general mental health and like underserved populations. Um, and I ended up back working in eating disorders, um, really kind of no real intention of doing so, but somebody contacted me and there was a job position open and I was like, okay, I, I guess we'll kind of come full circle with this. So that's how I became a therapist. And really, you know, people ask me a lot, how does theater relate to that? And I think theater taught me empathy. Um, theater taught me the power of story. Theater taught me how to really look at like, even in some of the most like deep, like the darkest kind of places, what is the nature of kind of love in that? Like, what are people really after? And really at the end of the day, like even some of the most difficult people are really in search of connection. So, um, so that's what really how, how I became a therapist. It's a very long answer, but it usually is for most people. <laughs> I think that was really helpful and you really brought up the next topic that mm -hmm. we wanted to get into, which was shame. And we've talked a lot on the show about the ways in which Josefina's feelings of shame uh, manifest and the most obvious example is when she literally is screaming to herself, shame, 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 after what's basically a minor incident. And she's she's not quite a tween yet. She's still young. She's 10 years old at that point. And so I know she's not billable. She's not a billable client for you. But what are some ways, if you could talk back to Josefina, like she leaves Santa Fe, she's somehow in Texas after 1848 with you. What are some ways that you could talk to her or to even young people about healthy ways to process shame? So I really – so here are the, the biggest um, – kind of steps towards staying resilient to shame. And really it's shame is the fear of disconnection. So anybody that has the capacity for empathy is going to have some shame. Um, 
because if we want relationships, we're going to fear losing it. Um, and as humans, we are social creatures who are dependent upon connection for survival. Um, so first I would tell Josefina, I would say, you know, it's not so much about getting rid of your shame as it is um, working to stay resilient to that feeling of being not good enough and therefore unworthy of love and belonging to staying resilient to that belief when it comes up rather than trying to like get rid of it completely. And so the first step in staying resilient to shame is actually doing what Josefina did, which is speaking and recognizing it. Like the fact that a 10 year old girl can identify that she's in shame and kind of say it out loud to herself is actually as sad as it is and as painful as it is, especially um, when this is, like you said, like just such a harmless thing. And she's just putting so much pressure on herself. Like it's, it's hard to, to hear her do, but it's very, very adaptive that she's able to say shame, 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 like that she's able to have the awareness to know where she's at in that moment. And then also I think, Another thing to do kind of more preemptively is really, um, you know, know kind of what your shame triggers are. And so those really lie in how do we want to be seen versus how we don't want to be seen. So one question I would have for Josefina would be like, how did that instance like come up against a wanted identity or an unwanted identity for you? Hmm. Um, and Yes, because when we, we when we know that information on the front end, we can be more resilient maybe to some of those like very intense emotional reactions that shame can bring up. Um, and then the third really important thing is self-compassion. Um, talking to ourselves like we would talk to somebody that we love, which I think that I want so much more of that for Josefina, mm. um, for her to give herself the kindness that she gives other people. Um, and then the next step is being able to practice vulnerability and receive empathic su- support from really safe and trustworthy people. Um, and in the book, it sort of happens um, – she doesn't have to go as much um, – sort of into a really vulnerable space in order to do that because Tia Dolores like kind of shows up for her in that moment. Um, but, you know, when Josefina's older, um, she's not going to have like her, she might not have her sisters as close by or Tia Dolores sort of like showing up um, like in those moments without her having to ask for it. So a, a big skill that we teach um is around being able to like ask for support and pick up that phone in really hard times and to talk about um, the shame that's coming up with other people. Uh, because when we're not resilient to our shame, we we have a fight, flight, or freeze response, um, which you can see um, played out for Josefina. Well, yeah, she flees Tia Magdalena's home after smashing that medicine jar and then Tia Dolores comforts her. So that yeah. seems like a key moment in that and what you're describing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she's even starting to question like her worth as like as a potential healer. And it really she, you know, shame makes us question like who we are as people, which is why it's so dangerous. But I do think that, you know, Tia Dolores gave her really wonderful wisdom and that I forget what the exact line is, but um, about second chances. And so I just think that's that's that was great advice. I have such issue with like the thought of Tia Dolores like being a serial killer because, <laughs> because I can't like accept it. I just I mean, do you think but is this Stockholm syndrome? Like are you just I it would just not so much Stockholm syndrome, it would just break my heart for little Josefina if like this woman who shows up for her in so many ways is so like evil it it would ju- it would be a whole other loss for Josefina that like I I just it would break my heart it would break my heart that's why I think I'm in some denial about the potential of Tia Dolores being a serial well, killer I mean is this where we encourage you to acknowledge your denial and you know like reach out to us with some vulnerability <laughs> yes and I'm feeling some shame about like <laughs> about like my level of denial like I should wake up and just acknowledge it and like be more emotionally strong because I'm a therapist and everything but like so thank you for letting me speak my shame in like a safe place that's why Um, we're here that's why we're here I mean what would what would you say to Floricita right now like defending Tia Dolores like just think about that I don't know. Mm. I mean, you maybe mm. just like you need to meditate on that for. I a think second. I need to think about it a little bit. Let yeah. me. Can I pivot us to someone else who might, may or may not be as sinister as Tia Dolores for a hot sec, and yes. that is international thought leader Valerie Tripp. In many ways, okay. the most tragic event in this entire series happens before we even meet this family, and that's the death of the mother. And so, mm. I kind of just want to like break the fourth wall with you and have you kind of think through with us what you make of the fact that Valerie Tripp chose to have a maternal death be so critical to this entire story arc? Mm -hmm. Well, I think just acknowledging that, I mean, art is personal and and writing and, you know, a form of art and that um, this relates to Valerie Tripp in some way. Um, it, It reflects her, some part of her somehow. I don't know Valerie Tripp, obviously, and so I don't want to. I don't want to speculate too much, but I think if I mean, I wonder if she was maybe possibly grieving someone in her life at the time, and and this is how she coped with that for herself. I think honestly, a, a more generous reading than we have usually given <laughs> in, you know, in partially trying to be humorous and in, in looking at this is. There is something provocative to thinking about the fact that Josefina does not grow up in a family that has a mother, a father, and siblings, as many of the other American girls mm-hmm. do. And this being a later part of Tripp's contributions to the series, it is actually quite thoughtful that she does write about a person who lacks a maternal figure, um, much in the same way that Molly is lacking her father because he's away in the war. But it probably made Josefina relatable to a lot more mm-hmm. kids, even those who maybe hadn't lost a mother to death, but who lived in what some people would call a non-traditional, but I think normative situation now, which is not necessarily growing up with a mother and a father in the sense that people once yes. thought of. 
Yes. Another thing that comes to mind is how Tia Dolores comes in and in a way seems to like kind of put a bandaid on things. And I am not in any way saying that like these stories aren't full of pain and sadness and grief. Like there's nothing that can ever completely like take away that, that the pain of, of death, obviously. But I do think that it's sort of like a bit of a fantasy in a way of like, okay, someone like not every child who, whose mother dies has someone to kind of like arrive unexpectedly and fill that hole as much as Tia Dolores attempts to either in, you know, the the reasons behind that can be exact, you know, there's a lot of speculation around that, of course. But so I'm almost like, okay, is, is this sort of like, the ideal way in which Valerie Tripp would have liked to experience a loss that she's experienced, like someone to kind of come in and, and fix everything and make the family structure, like come back together. So that's another thought that I had. I don't, I don't know if that makes mm. any sense. No, it does. I mean, it kind of feels like almost a Mary Poppins fantasy, like yes. this sort of supernatural almost person comes in and heals the family, not just one person grieving, but kind of enters the family system and fixes everything. Yes. Yes. And not not everybody has that, but then there's also something that's very, that can maybe, you know, I can, I can envision a girl reading this who, um, who whose mother has died or who maybe doesn't have like a relationship with her mother whose mother's out of the picture and that this could maybe inspire her to kind of um, be open to those sorts of like relationships with older women and find those role models and um, but still it gets to a level in this book where it does feel very supernatural there's also the total lack of father figure despite him yes. being alive and the more you think about it, he's really not emotionally available to the family. And then I think part of why the details that come out about him as we're kind of evaluating him as a Dolores suitor feel so strange. It's because we just know next to nothing mm-hmm. about him. And the way the family is structured, we know literally nothing about Anna's husband. Right. Her sons are kind of thrown in in the last book. And Abuelito <laughs> is literally absent most He's of He's a complete lives. mystery. It so my one of my big biggest questions was like where does Papa like get his support and I think that that says so much about the time period I think it also says so much about pressure the pressure of like men to like hold it all together emotionally and how that can lead to so much shutdown and distance and therefore really hurt girls and women I also think it's probably reflective of. When we've talked a bit in the past and pretty much anything you read about the process of writing these books bears this out. You know, Valerie Tripp was rightfully very proud of having talked to a lot of women about their grandmothers and that she spent a lot of time in salons in New Mm -hmm. Mexico connecting with people. And you wonder if part of what comes out in this book is just a lack of Mm -hmm. knowledge about men. Yeah, Yeah, I think that sounded way more. No, than no, I, I meant actually it think to. that's a really good point because if that's who her research base is, so to speak, then that's the thing that she has authority to speak on, I guess. But also, like, I mean, f- from your perspective, Allison, do you find that there is a gendered breakdown in men's willingness to kind of 
be vulnerable around grief or around shame or the things that these books get at? Absolutely. Um, like, you know, for example, there's a, um, there's been a big increase in, um, men, um, seeking treatment for an eating disorder. And it's so hard to discern, okay, is this that there, there actually is an, an increase in the presentation of eating disorders in men, or is this that men, um, finally feel safe enough um, within our culture to seek help. Um, and I really think for, for mental health and in, in general, I, I think, I think it's that men are just now kind of finally feeling like, okay, it's safe for me as a man to go to therapy. It's safe for me as a man to, to get that sort of emotional support from other men. Um, I mean, there's this like, you know, as, as hard as vulnerability is for women, I think for men, it's been particularly ingrained in most men, like do not show weakness, do not show how you feel. Um, and again, that really breeds shame. And when we're in shame, we're not going to be as connected to our, our families and to the people who, who we love. Um, I think women have been very socialized throughout time, you know, like meeting in circle, um, meeting in salons, um, just having these meeting places to connect. And I think for men haven't had as many of those spaces Yeah, that for that sense. focus on like, like, yeah, like emotional connection. Um, so I'm wondering what are some, if you're thinking through the books, I guess we kind of would love your thoughts on what are some healthy ways that you see the family grieving and less healthy ways? First of all, let me, let me start by saying this grief is messy. And I think that healthy ways of coping and grieving should look kind of messy. You know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions, there are a lot of misconceptions around Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, which, you know, is what most people think of when they think of healing from grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And the thing about those stages of grief, they weren't initially designed to describe people who were um, in bereavement. They were designed to describe people's experience after they themselves were diagnosed with the terminal illness. Oh, wow. Illness. I didn't know that. Yep. You just blew my mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. It was mind-blowing the first time that I heard that too. Um, and I think they are still applicable, but there's even um, Kubler-Ross herself said that she never intended it to be sort of a, okay, step one, check, step two, check, step three, check for, you know, that they are more um, phases that people can cycle through and they can skip different stages. So I think that's, that's something to keep in mind, that acceptance isn't a place of arrival. And so I, a model that I really like to use is about, is um, Warden's Four Tasks of Mourning. And the first task is to accept the reality of the new loss. The second is to work through the pain of grief. The third is to adjust to an environment in which the deceased person is not there. And four is to find an endearing connection or an enduring connection, excuse me, to the deceased while embarking on a new life. And so with those in mind and keeping in mind that like 
grief is inherently messy. One of the healthiest sort of movement through these tasks or these stages uh, that I see in the book is um, in Clara when mm. she holds, so she holds on to Nina. And I see that as really her working through the pain of grief. I see that as kind of working through this like kind of denial, anger, bargaining. If I hold on to this doll, then things will be okay. There's just an authenticity about that that I that I love. And I think it's one of the very few examples in the book of like grief being a really inherently messy process. And then she finally, in moving through that, does move to a place of more acceptance and that she finds this way to have that connection um, to her mom while embarking on a new life. And I think that that the her finally giving Nina to Josefina, um, I think is a big symbol for that, um, that she, she has in a sense anchored that connection with mama and that she is embarking on a new life in giving the doll to its next rightful holder. Um, and so I, I think that that's just a very um, healthy, very human expression of grief um, I think we've talked about how Papa's grief or unexpressed grief um, has like, grief that feels really stuffed to me, I think has created a lot of distance. Um, I think Josefina, I think there's sort of like an emotional bypassing happening with her where she's sort of, she, you know, and she's a child. So it's so hard to, I mean, she's going through these these stages and feeling these emotions like at the in like to the extent at which she feels safe to do so um and to the extent in which like she has an example for how to do it um but i think if papa is so shut down in his own grief i think that she too is sort of stuffing down her own grief as well and kind of trying to move right towards um, acceptance or right towards like, okay, like, you know, mama's not here anymore, but she lives within our hearts. And we hear her say these things throughout the books that sound like that, that are very wise. And that um, that really would indicate a level of acceptance and adjustment and finding meaning and, and that connection to her ma. But I can't help but wonder, like, you know, what is brewing beneath the surface in all of this? Exactly. Um, like, I think to me, I was waiting for her to, like, smash a plate. I mean, yes, she smashes the medicine jar, but that was an accident. It actually leads to this huge shame moment. But just something where it's like you externalize what you're feeling internally, like that would have felt honest to me. And again, I don't know anything about healthy ways to profit, process grief. But yeah, I was just feeling like something, I wanted something as a reader that didn't feel like a performance. Yes. She is, in these books, she is performing. She's not performing in like a, you know, like literally tap dancing around like Molly does, but she performs in her making other people happy. Um in her trying to trying to rescue and trying to save. And it's like, I want someone to be there for her. And so he, I have a theory. I think that of, out of all the American girls, the one, the American girl that I would worry the most about when it comes to developing an eating disorder would be Josefina. Oh, wow. Can you say yeah. more? 
Um, I think like we talked about the way that she like stuffs all of her feelings down. Um, I think there's going to be years of like repressed emotion that hasn't had a catharsis. And so I think, I mean, that's the one big reason. The second is throughout these books, I hear her say things like there were butterflies in my stomach and my stomach churned. And um, I felt this heavy chill down my spine. And it just, there was a lot of somatization of emotions, especially in her GI tract. And there's a lot of research that shows that people with eating disorders, particularly children with anorexia, have a higher rate of somatization of emotional experiences. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nancy Zucker at Duke University has done a lot of research on this topic. And when I was reading through these Josefina books, I thought of her research and I was like, wow, I think that, um, yeah, that, that, that was my worry for Josefina. Now, if you could imagine a more present friend for Josefina than her goat or Mariana, <laughs> what would you want that friend to be like? I would want that friend to be someone who is, first of all, I think fun, like giving, like teaching her how to have how to have fun and how to enjoy herself and fun that isn't attached to making somebody else happy. And I'd want that friend to really be a good listener for her. That's what I would want. And I her. think, you know, I'm just curious your thoughts because I think so many listeners of our show, and I know Allison and I um, personally too, we've all been people who've experienced grief. And I know that, you know, when you personally experience grief, um, a lot of times you you don't realize what's actually not comforting until people try to comfort you mm-hmm. saying things that are kind of offensive or just come off wrong, even if extremely well-intended, like, you know, I'm sure she's in a better place or things like mm-hmm. that. And I'm wondering, you know, if we had this friend of Josefina and for friends listening to our show who may want to comfort, you know, people, loved ones in their lives and friends who have lost someone, what are healthy ways to kind of comfort someone who's grieving? Yeah. So I think that the first thing would be to not let perfectionism get in, get in the way of you showing up for somebody. I think sometimes we worry so much about like, Oh my God, am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to do the wrong thing? That sometimes that really holds people back from like being present to that person. Because the truth is like, you can always circle back. Like you can always say, you know, I wonder, I, I worry that what I said the other day wasn't helpful. I want to make sure I'm supporting you in the ways that I need to support you. So like, remember you are enough. Um, for that person. And when somebody is expressing their grief to you, really the most important thing to do is to listen and to ask questions if, if that's what they're wanting and to really stay present. And one, if, if you're really wondering, you know, oh my gosh, what does this person need right now? What are they, what are they, how do they want me to respond? It's okay to ask. I think for the person in grief to just be asked the open-ended question of like, how can I support you right now can be extremely overwhelming. But to ask, would you like me to just repeat back to you what I'm hearing? Would you like me to stay silent? Would you like me to ask you more questions if I am curious about your experience more? That's a, that's a really great place to start. And 
I have a friend who um, runs a support group for people in grief. And one of the biggest things that I learned from her is instead of asking a person like, oh, how are you? Ask them, how are you today? Hmm. Because it really acknowledges the ever-changing nature of grief. And I think for me, it just it just sounds more intentional for whatever reason. And then really try to avoid those pithy statements about, you know, oh, they're in a better place or, well, if you just remember all the good times that you had with this person, because really at the end of the day, what those statements do is they can send a message to the person in grief um, that their feelings are too uncomfortable for like someone to be in the presence of, um, and that they need to kind of like, quote, get over it. Um, that can really be like the implicit message in some of those like pithy kind of Pollyanna statements. And the third thing to remember is that the person in grief is going to need ongoing support. Often, um, all of the support comes, you know, right, you know, kind of within the first month or so. But really, it's, you know, a year later, two years later, grief never goes away. And so really staying um, mindful and intentional about supporting that person in their grief as time goes on and not being afraid to, to bring up the death or to bring up the loss. Because trust me, that person who's in grief, like, it, it's not like you're reminding them of something that they've forgotten about and bringing it up. You're acknowledging it. Right. And that, that really resonates with me because I know that you had asked off air about um, the fact that people talked about a year of mourning in the Josefina books mm -hmm. that kind of references like a general sense of ritualized mourning around marking time after the passage of a loved one. But I think in our world, there's a sense that people kind of put a time limit on grief. Like, okay, yeah, in the first month, I'm going to be really thinking about that. But not almost like, aren't you over it yet, but almost like this pressure to move on and or to put, say, like grief takes X amount of time when in fact, you know, grief and the amount of time people process it, it seems to be very individual and might actually be a lifetime. Right, exactly. Like no two people experience grief in the same way. And, you know, death is like obviously permanent. And so feelings are going to come up around that that death or um, if it's another type of loss, like throughout someone's lifespan, it could be, you know, if somebody gets married, for example, it could be really triggered during that time. If, um, if there is another death or another loss of some sort, it could get triggered again. And sometimes grief can really come up in very unexpected times as well. I, I know like both personally and professionally, like, you know, this episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're 
you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. It can come up when people leave. Oh, I have a question for you guys. Which American, what other American girl do you think would be the ideal friend for Josefina? Wow. Well, okay. Let me just, I can't speak for Allison, but just kind of reiterating what we said before, reading the Felicity books, I am stunned at how little I remember from these plot lines and what these girls are actually like. So I don't know that I'm qualified to answer. I think, cause I'm, I'm feeling the same way that, that y'all are feeling, but I don't know why. I guess I'm like, oh my God, y'all are historians. Y'all remember more. I feel like we want Josefina to go on yep. a living spree. So I think she needs Samantha's <laughs> money, if right. not her friendship. I think she needs Samantha's money, but no, maybe like, Felicity's devil may care no, attitude. No, I don't think Felicity's right. I, 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 my fear is that Felicity would be one of those people that's like, Oh my God, I know when my gerbil died. That's my fear. Oh my <laughs> That's my fear. Well, and Samantha's an orphan, right. so she gets it. I just feel like Samantha too would be like, listen, this is what a good haircut looks like. Leave Mariana behind. Allison, I think now. you're bringing your own haircut trauma into this. And I just want to note that you posted some really powerful images from a care and keeping of you recently on our Instagram about haircut trauma is what I'm calling it. I don't know what the professional term is, but you know, haircut shame resilience. Do you have any? Is that what's (laughs) that's what we're calling haircut shame resilience? Allison has that. She's been resilient through this summer of that haircut. Good. That's awesome. Well. You know, I was a little surprised and we've had a lot of people ask us if we connected with care and keeping of you and, you know, what we made of it. And much like going back and reading the historical books, the advice in the 2002, you know, early care and keeping of you, it it seems very good. It is. Okay. So I was a sophomore in high school in 2002. So it was not like care and keeping of you was, you know, Way same. past my time. I think I'm your age, Allison. We must be the same age. Yeah, yeah. I'm 33. Um, yeah. I. Oh my god. I just had a whole like idea for a story. Like, like, what if they had like all the American girls, like a book about all the American girls at the age of 33? Like that literally just popped in my head. Anyway, okay. We're. I'm, <laughs> I'm done with that. I would totally read that. Um, but Karen, keeping of you. So I read the feelings book and. Honestly, admittedly, I was like, oh God, this is going to be a doozy, but it was so good. It was so good. Like the coping skills that they talk about um, are really wonderful. I mean, they borrow from dialectical behavior therapy and they use progressive muscle relaxation and um, like mindfulness, but then the words they have for it are really awesome. And like, they don't sound like therapy speak. Um, which when I work, I work with adolescents and adults. And so when I'm working with my adolescents, like, I, like TBH, like I'm going to steal some of this language from these books because I think it is like much more relatable than um, kind of a lot of names for those kind of coping strategies. One thing that it says in there that I thought was like really, really great 
was they were talking about like basically reaching out to others as a way to cope. But they said, don't let your chattiness keep you from figuring out how you really feel. That's, that's wise. Like that really, that's a wise, like kind of dialectic to hold around like, yes, reach out for connection and don't let that be a distraction um, from like, like really going inside and like listening in as they call it. I, I, I just, I'm very impressed. What did y'all think? Did y'all read them? I had, I think, one or two of them. And we've since been collecting basically everything American Girl Mm -hmm. for the past year. So I have a pretty sizable pile of about 20 different ones now because they made a lot of different subject guides, Mm -hmm. I guess you could call it, for different topics. Um, And then they have the Sticky Situation series. What I think you know, and again, not a professional opinion on these things, but I think taking the hair as an example, because that's a good template that they used. It tells you like five or six different ways that you can cope or think about a bad haircut. And there's far more serious things in the book as well. But it also basically says like, it's going to take time and or you may just decide Mm -hmm. that you're over it the next day, which I think is probably the best advice that a teenage person could hear. Completely. Yeah. I mean, and I think this idea about like seeking connection is great, but also sitting with your own feelings is so important is in some ways even more vital now because something that Alice and I reflect on is that, you know, growing up with American Girl, the internet was just sort of like AOL, like came into my house when I was like 10 or 11 years old and then slowly got more and more invested, you know, like became a bigger part of my life. But now on social media, it's like you can connect with anyone all the time about everything. But in some ways, that's kind of there's all this research saying how isolating that actually is. But so in many ways, people are lonelier now, but also afraid to kind of sit with their own feelings. Like you almost need to check every decision with the populace before you like figure out how you feel about something. Is that fair? Yeah, I do. And I think another thing, another reason why I think social media is keeping people more lonely um, and even texting and all of that is because it's not a substitute for that face-to-face in-person connection. And so you can tell whatever sort of vulnerable story like that you want via a text or express any sort of feeling that you want um, via I don't know, Snapchat or whatever, but it's really not true vulnerability because you're not seeing the nonverbal communication. You're just sort of like putting it out there and it never really fills um, that need. Yeah. So I'm thinking even with grief, which we've been talking about, like even sharing condolences with someone, I think sometimes people will send a Facebook message or send an email because then maybe in some ways it's more comfortable for them. Like they don't have to be in that space and be uncomfortable with someone else's grief, but maybe that you're saying is not preferable to like something in person. Um, I mean, I think with things like grief, especially like condolences and stuff like that, I mean, it, it might even be over overwhelming right. for the person in grief to have all of that like in person. Is I mean, I think there can be for something like that, there can be like a practicality to it, I think. But I, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's sort of like the person that will post this like Facebook memorial post for someone that they've like that they barely knew, but then like won't show up to the funeral 
it, you're right. It's sort of like, I, I'm only going to, I'm going to do this because it like sort of checks a box off, but like, it's not that uncomfortable. I think Josefina would be like an Instagram girl and she would have just like only happy photos of her out with the goats or wandering through the mountains. Like it would be a symptom of her suppression. Wow. That's dark. Do you think she would appear on Instagram or would just be of goats in like scenic views? I don't think she would appear in it. I think it would be goats and scenic views and like happy birthday. So true. That's tough. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Or like I want to like thanking people all the time, you know. I just I I want Josefina to be okay. I want her to be okay. Um, I think she more than any other girl need, needed. I wish those they'd come out a little sooner for our age group, or maybe they did, and I, I just didn't have access to them. I remember there was like parts of them in the no. magazine. I or remember the did. magazine had the advice column in the back, and I really really loved that. Yeah. Yeah, that advice column was really good. Um, there were some things, so in the feelings book, there there were a couple things that I'm like, oh, it would be great if this could be updated or changed. And that's like, they didn't include shame in the like feelings wow. list, which is such a primitive emotion. But I, I mean, because I, like, it's one of my specialty areas, like, I really pick up on like where shame is not included in like lists of emotions or in any sort of emotional literacy work. And like, it wasn't in the movie inside out. I went over to my friend's house last night and she got the, these like generation mindful posters for her kid. And they had like a list of feelings on there. Shame wasn't on there, but it literally is like, it is the core like pain of the human experience is like, believing that my flaws make me worthy of unworthy of love and belonging and it can be like it's the most dysregulating emotion so I don't know I would add a chapter about like shame and also helping girls identify the difference between like shame and guilt and embarrassment um, because there are big differences between the three and they're like often used interchangeably when can you tell us or I feel like I need to know Um, that I actually don't know (laughs) Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, well, there's actually four self-conscious affects. There's shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. And so embarrassment, it's, it can feel like, oh my gosh, I just want to melt in the moment. But we have enough awareness to know like, okay, this is like going to be funny someday. Like people sit around at parties and we'll talk about like, oh, what's your most embarrassing moment? Like as an icebreaker, but like nobody sits around at parties and talks about like, hey, what's the most shameful thing that like ever happened to you in your life? Um, so th- that's embarrassment. Um, humiliation is, can be very similar to shame, but like we know that we mm. didn't deserve it. So humiliation would be like if we get yell if if like a a teacher or a coach or a boss like yells at us in front of a bunch of people um but we're like gosh that that felt horrible but we'll usually like tell somebody about it without much issue because we know like that was not okay and we didn't deserve that guilt is really a, a very like healthy emotion that serves a really good purpose. It guilt is when we've done something 
that that is out of alignment with our own value system and therefore like drives us to make amends. Like it's a warning bell. It's that feeling of like, oh, God, that really hurt somebody. And that is that is not what I want to bring to the world. And then shame is, like I said, that fear of disconnection or that fear that um, we are so flawed that we're un- unworthy of love and belonging. And so like when Josefina broke that vase, like a guilt response would have been like, oh, wow, like, okay, like, you know, I, I broke that. Um, I'm, and, th- and that would have motivated her to more readily go to um, Tia Magdalena and say, like, I am so sorry I did this. Like, what can I do to, to make it up to you? Um, but I mean, shame is where she went, where she really started questioning like her identity and like her worth as a person. And I think grief is really related to the shame that like she experiences in that moment too, because it like the, I think her, the death of her mom made the stakes so high. Like it wasn't just like, Oh, I broke this vase. It was like, I broke this vase. And like one of, you know, and then my aunt who is like one of the only, like I've already lost like my mother. Like I don't want to lose an aunt too. And that's not really said in the book, but I kind of can't help but wonder. Like, I was like, okay, this is a, about like a lot more than I think she's aware of in this moment. Um, so those are the differences between um, those self-conscious affects. And I think it's really like helpful um, for everybody to know the distinction. Because again, the first step in staying resilient to shame is being able to like identify it. Exactly. And I think that um, I'm wondering if you can recommend, um, you know, if our listeners are our age or thereabouts, some are younger than us. um, If you've grown up in a situation where you have felt a lot of shame or you feel a lot of guilt and you're not really sure how to deal with that, you know, the ways that therapy can help you learn some of these healthier coping mechanisms. Yes. So, Book-wise, I would recommend um, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Um, And then she also has another great book um, called Rising Strong. Um, Daring Greatly really focuses on, um, like, kind of how to, like, move through shame to, like, really, like, show up, be seen, and, like, live brave in the world. Um, and then rising strong really focuses on what do you do to like get back up after a fall. So those are the two books that I would recommend daring greatly and rising strong by Brene Brown. And if someone is really wanting to do, um, work with a therapist around, um, shame and there's a really big tie between shame and grief. So I would even, even if you're, if it feels more like grief for you or that's your experience right now, I would still recommend that you visit um, the daringway.com um, to find a therapist who's licensed in um, Brene Brown's work in your area. Well, that's amazing advice. And we have a really serious question about, you know, we've just read through a lot of fan fiction. So we know that our listeners dream really big and we just want you to dreamcast and or provide a pivotal plot point from a Josefina screenplay. So like if you could pull all your interests together, like who are you going to cast in the Josefina story when it hits the big screen? Oh my gosh. I am so bad at this, but I'm going to- We believe in you. We believe in Um, you. 
we'll just say this, like in this universe, J-Lo is available to play Tia D. Okay. Yeah, I can get on board with that. Um, This sounds horrible. Is Cheetah Rivera still alive? I I believe so. I... (laughs) I think she is. I just would love Cheetah Rivera to like play Tia Magdalena. Um, so yes, that that's the musical theater geek in me probably more than anything. But oh, I would love to see Demi Lovato um, play one of the sisters. Wow, I love that. I love that. And, like and Selena Gomez, like they can have like a little. They can be reunited and playing wow. um, the sister. Like they can each play a sister. I gosh, playing. Josefina, I'm I'm so just like not. I don't even know any child actors that are like like I don't know who they are now. I don't even know. Um, oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! I know. I've got it. That little girl on This Is Us, Mackenzie Hack. It's H A N C Z I. Oh no, wait. H A N C S I C S A K. But her, I think she would be a precious host of Wow. Family. And can I suggest, I mean, and this is your casting, but Edward James almost for Abelito, because if he's anything as passionate about El Camino Royale as he is about teaching calculus in that other movie, which name I can't remember right now. Allison, do you remember what that movie is called? Uh, Stand, uh, Stand and Deliver? Yes. No? Did you see I that? I saw years ago. I saw it years and when ago. I was in high school. Anytime our teacher didn't want to teach math, <laughs> she made us watch that movie. So I've seen it like three times. Also, it was not a calculus class. I don't know if that matters, but I've come to really believe in his talent. And I feel like if you gave him the nod, he wouldn't disappoint yes. you. Yeah. Yes. It, that is it. Yeah, wow. Perfect. Well, I mean, this has been quite a journey. Thank you so much. And can you tell us where people can find you if they want to share their engram opinions and whatnot? Yes, please do reach out. You can find me on Instagram at Allison Marek. That's A-L-L-I-S-O-N. M is in Mary, A-R-E-K. And my website is www.allisonmarek.com. All right, there you have it. Thanks so much for listening to our first Care and Keeping of You episode. As always, we love hearing from you. I just got an email the other day asking for my thoughts on One Tree Hill and a different message asking about medical humanities. Allison gets so many awesome messages on our Instagram and Twitter accounts and Facebook, so please do keep in touch with us. You can find Allison at Allison Horrocks on Insta and Twitter. You can find me at Mary Mahoney123 on Twitter and at Mimi Mahoney on Insta. And you can find the show on Facebook and on Instagram at American Girls Podcast and on Twitter at A Girls Pod. We love hearing from you and we can't wait for our next adventure when we meet Kirsten. We've already heard from many of you who are excited to start this next series, and we are too. Thanks for listening. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.